Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottens. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for listening in. Today, we're delving into one of our favorite topics, technology. We're excited to talk with Colin Hurd, Business Development Manager at Raven Autonomy. Colin is joining us to discuss autonomous technology innovations and how a college project sparked an ultimate mission to find solutions that solve some of today's challenges in agriculture. So let's jump right in. Welcome, Colin, to the podcast. We're excited to have you here. I know it's been a little while since we've had a discussion on technology and automation, and we're really looking forward to this conversation today with you about that. One of the things, though, that we love to do as we get started here is to really talk about the path that brought you here. We'd like to hear some of your uh, background and what really drove you to recognize the situations that are in agriculture that you thought the challenge that that you might be able to resolve and and what kind of that thinking process went through. We love to hear the why of what you're up to. We'll kind of let you dive in right there if you would. Absolutely. Um, so I, I went to Iowa State and I studied um, agriculture and I had a minor in business. Um, and while I was in school, I was kind of exploring um, agriculture law, actually. Um, took a class there uh, on that and was thinking maybe I wanted to go that route, but um, then I also took an entrepreneurship class, uh, kind of a famous class now um, called Econ 334, which uh, Kevin McKinley uh, teaches. So um, I, I did that and I actually, uh, as a part of that class, all the students were required to come up and basically pitch a business idea that they come up with. And um, so I had spent the prior summer out working on a farm and uh, we were spraying, um, just spraying crops. And one of the things I noticed that there was a lot of uh, compaction caused from the weight of the planter and the, the crops were kind of yellow and you could tell it was affecting the yield um, just in those uh, wheel track rows. <clears throat> so uh, kind of my simplistic mind, I thought, well, if there was a way to uh, sort of break that compaction up while you were planting, then maybe you could get some of that yield uh, back. And so I pitched this idea called track till uh, in that class. And uh, it, it was well received. It actually, there's a little competition to do and it won that competition. And so I kind of, I, I wasn't really serious about it, but uh, Kevin and some of the folks within that entrepreneur um, ecosystem encouraged me to keep pursuing it and uh you know so i i did some tests the following year and actually saw some positive results and so it kind of got me going i guess on this idea that hey maybe i could start a company and we could sell these things um i know a few people who could help build them um not being an engineer i needed i i needed somebody to help with that so um i guess as i started getting closer to graduation i i uh, did a, a simple kind of analysis and I said, well, you know, I'm essentially broke right now. 
Um, so if this doesn't work out, I can't get any more broke, right? As long as I don't borrow any money from anybody <laughs> that I can't pay back. Um, and so I figured there wasn't too far to fall if it didn't work. And uh, so I found um, uh, a business partner and we started a company called Agriculture Concepts and that was the product. So we actually built uh, quite a few track till systems and started hooking them up to planters all over the countryside. Um, did that for about four years um, and then eventually licensed that product line to Yetter Manufacturing. So uh, you can still buy track till. Um, I'd highly recommend it, especially if you're using a large heavy planter. Um, but uh, Yetter Manufacturer uh, and all their dealers have that. So I guess that's what started me on an entrepreneurial journey. journey. Um, and from that experience, I learned a lot in terms of how to start companies and run businesses. But I also uh, was always sort of bothered because uh, the compaction, we could recover about 80% of the yield that we were losing uh, from that compaction. But that 20% was still sort of outstanding. And it, it seemed like uh, if there was a way we could reduce equipment size or create uh, avoid that compaction to begin with, it's, it would be a better solution overall. Um, and I guess that's what started me down the path of automation, right? So the only way in, in my eyes to do that and eventually have smaller equipment um, is to have it be automated just because the labor challenges that farms face are so significant that no one's able to essentially just trade out their 24 row planters and start pulling six row planters just because um so that really got me interested in in automation and i think the other thing was is that at that time nobody had done anything very significant with automation in the industry right so uh, the automotive industry was making some pretty good strides um towards driverless technology but in ag, we we had already solved part of the challenge right away in like 2000 with uh, auto steer, but we'd never really gone beyond that. We just stopped there and stayed there for you know over 16 years um, before really pursuing the next step towards full automation. And uh, there was a really interesting uh, farmer uh, out of um, I think it, out of Saskatoon. Canada, who basically got involved in a hobby drone, like build your own drone uh, website forum called DIY Drones. And he took uh, the controller out of a drone, hooked it up to his grain cart tractor, and essentially had it all rigged up with a bunch of hobby electronics so he could control this 7R tractor from his combine. And I was like, that is amazing. And this guy wasn't an engineer. He taught himself some basic Python code to solve this problem. But I guess it, it showed me two things. One, the technology is there to do this. Um, if if uh, essentially technology we use for, in a lot of cases, toys uh, can be used to automate a tractor, then there's got to be some really good commercial technology that can be built. Um, but the other thing that it showed me, I guess, is that this is a real uh, problem and if, if a guy's willing to go through all the pain to learn how to write code and go through all that, the hacking effort to hook it up to his tractor, this is a significant problem that needs a solution. Um, 
And so that's really what started uh, Smart Egg. Um, and from there, uh, we spent a lot of time actually building this uh, combine grain cart system today called AutoCart. Um, and then the rest is sort of history. <laughs> well, there's a lot of history from there, but before we yeah. get, I appreciate you sharing that, that background. I, boy, there's some really key points to dive into there, Colin, that, that I'm excited about. And, and one that you said is that when you look at our equipment keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, right? Well, w- why is that? If we can have one tractor and a planter, as an example, replace four tractors and planters, it's not necessarily an equipment cost savings because as the horsepower goes up, the equipment itself goes up. And, and a 16-row planter is more than twice the price of an 8-row planter because exactly. there's, there's three times the weight there. There's you know folding mechanisms and all this. Or a 24-row planter is you know more than three times an 8-row. It's, it's probably six times of an 8-row planter. So we're, we're paying, you know, some more for that equipment. But the thing is, you can't find, you can find one person to work for $20 an hour, but you can't find five people to work for $4 an hour, right? That's what it boils down to. So I think that's, that's really, really interesting. And, and, and when you really look at it, to do eight rows or 20 foot wide application, it don't take much frame or, or much, um, much equipment strength and size to do that it's when we get beyond the kind of those parameters that we really add the weight to the field correct is that is that kind of a that six and eight row configuration is kind of the it takes so much weight to to get there then once you get your rate weight per row exponentially increases once you get beyond that 20 foot width is that about yeah right? i think so i i mean i don't know if it's a direct uh increase across all rows right i mean the wing outside rows typically are going to be lighter in some cases, but you're, you're, uh, the trade-off is, is that you're piling more and more weight on the center rows, um, and creating a bigger level of compaction, bigger issues there. And then the other thing is, is, uh, it's not just compaction. It's also, um, the, the size of equipment, right? So I don't know if you've ever driven or tried to drive like a 36 or 48 row planner through town, um, but I mean, it's, it's not easy and, and we're really at the limitations in terms of size, uh, and it's, it's a transport factor, right? So we just can't, we just can't get any bigger. Uh, I mean, it's a diminishing return, right? The, right. over a certain point, the larger you get, the less efficient you are as a whole. And mm-hmm. so I think if you are able to downsize, uh, without having to increase, uh, the number of people required on an operation there's a ton of benefit from that and that that definitely i think is probably one of the most um exciting elements about uh you know automation and being able to to do that so uh, i i definitely get really excited about that when um i think about you know a future where you could have multiple smaller machines running more efficiently and you know really not requiring any more labor to do that Right. So, and I, and congratulations on your, on your first product that became successful and exited. Yetter Manufacturing is a, a great company to pick something up like that and, and get it distributed to the right people. And it truly did solve a problem with those heavy central field planners, you know, having all those weight uh, issues right under the, under the center of the frame. So I, I've seen that in action and it, and it works great. So um, I think that it's just interesting how it's, 
you know, here here was a problem, and and like you said, this uh, farmer out of Saskatoon, Canada, you know, had to go through all those pain points to solve this problem, and and it's just it just fascinates me that other people hadn't picked up on that, right? Uh, were you surprised that why hasn't this been done? Yeah, that, definitely uh, one of those things. It's like, you, and I looked pretty hard too. It wasn't like it was just like, oh, this fell in my lap. But uh, it was like I, I looked all over, and that was the closest thing that I could find to someone having done it at that point in early 2016. Was this guy in Canada who had kind of hacked together his tractor? I mean, well, let me. I'll step back from that. So Kinsey actually did uh, do an autonomous grain cart type project in um i think it was 2013. Uh, so they were way ahead of the curve really honestly and it was uh some really fabulous technology um and so that was my first stop right i, I was like okay well if kinsey's doing this then like what why haven't we heard anything and you know three years it's been silent and i had a lot of farmers that are like i talk to kinsey every year and asked to buy this thing and you know, the price just keeps going up. I don't think it exists. Uh, and so then eventually I was able to talk to Kinsey uh, and learn a little bit more about it. And they're just like, you know, it was more R&D. We're not going to pursue anything here. Um, and uh, it's it's a little bit outside of our core. Uh, so don't expect to see something from us. And, you know, we haven't. They've been true to that. Um, but I think what was interesting about that is they're, because of what they did, they actually sort of laid the groundwork for AutoCart to come around because um, when we went and talked to different farms uh, that were interested in automation or dealing with labor challenges um, or just needed, you know, uh, an extra set of hands here and there um, and were looking towards technology, they all said, well, if you can automate my grain cart, I'd, I'd buy it right away. And I think part of that was because Kinsey had been out there showing showing this idea, right? Mm-hmm. This concept, and guys were starting to get ready for it. Um, I think I also so saw. It I a, think there's a lot of pent up demand. Did Did I also see a deer video about that too? Uh, you know, Kinsey was kind of first, and deer had one, but it was just kind of demonstrated to dealers only. And again, yeah, this deer, mystique deer was behind a, it. Deer had a product called Machine Sync, and that had been out for a little bit. And all that wasn't like a complete driverless option, but I think it was a you could basically it would hold your grain cart next to oh, the okay. combine. Okay, uh, so it was, a, it was a step towards it, but not all the way there. Um, but I think that also kind of contributed to this uh, this demand for a product that could actually do this. It gave us a lot of conviction to to say um, auto cart. Uh, basically, automating the grain cart was a was a really good first step into into the space. Well, let's talk about that pain point too, because at harvest, uh, you know, Midwest farmer, the the person who's in the grain cart is typically uh, one of the lower skill sets, right? Because they don't have a CDL to drive a semi. The high skill set is typically the combine operator. So by default, you're the cart guy. And <laughs> there's T-shirts even made about yep blame me i'm the cart guy and and it's kind of a joke in in midwest farming that the cart guy takes the fall for everything being too slow too fast too rambunctious you know uh, whatever it's always the cart guy's fault but it's actually uh, during that uh labor demand of harvest 
it swells, and it's typically always a part-time job too, correct? I mean, it's just additional staff. And uh, we found yeah. on our own farm it's a real struggle because as we incorporate cover crops, you know, now we've gone from a, a three-person, you know, combine, carton, and truck to a four-person with the cover crop seeder. So then, you know, we even have more demand there. And I'm sure, you know, other people have other fall activities that uh, just all hit at once. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the things, um, you know, we talk about a lot because I, I think initially everyone looks at, um, let's say, a, an autonomous grain cart, for example, and then they say, well, you know, I'm only going to spend 20 bucks an hour at most to have somebody sit in it. So it's it's going to take me five years to pay for the cost of this, right? Um, and one of the things that we realize is when we talk to farms, there's a lot more to it than that, right? It's not just about the labor cost savings. It's, it is about that. That helps. But um, there's a lot of other areas there where people start to benefit. And, you know, like in your case where you have other jobs that need to happen on the farm. So it's actually about being able to redeploy labor in some cases. Uh, one of the first farms we um, worked with, uh, you know, they had an on-farm agronomist, a highly skilled guy. Um, and he'd sit in the grain cart all fall. Well, there's a lot of other things during the fall specifically that he could be doing to improve, uh, you know, the state of the farm for next year, going doing soil sampling. And uh, so having the ability to free him up to go do those other jobs made a really big difference. Um, and I think that's uh, something that more and more so farms have to kind of consider is, what is, what's the opportunity cost of this labor, right? If I have a mechanic, for example, mechanics are really valuable on a farm, as you know. If if he's stuck in the tractor all the time and he can't fix stuff or he can't do maintenance, um, what's that going to cost me down the line? Or how often am I having to stop my operation because something else broke down and pull that guy out, you know? So I think um, that's a, there's a lot of arbitrage that happens within that farm labor pool and you know the grain cart driver like you mentioned earlier is kind of typically the bottom of the totem pole right he gets he's in it it's because most of the time that's the lowest skilled guy on the job even though it's an important job um it's just uh, the opportunity cost is always uh less it seems like for the grain cart operator <laughs> well and I, I see the other thing is just finding them right you know typically right. it's uh you know this retired person this year and another you know retired person it's kind of a um when people retire they get the grain cart job until they're they're sick of being blamed for being the grain cart guy right <laughs> but uh you should consider t-shirts colin of uh auto cart you can't blame the grain cart guy anymore right because <laughs> then you got to blame the op combine operator yeah i i agree but, or i somebody else uh actually some uh gal came up to us at a farm show once and said you know i, I want to thank you guys because you're saving you're saving farm marriages all over <laughs> that is true uh my wife uh told me um several years ago that uh we she was done being the grain card operator. So um, she thought that was best for our marriage and we're still married yeah. because of it. So <laughs> there, there is some truth. Uh, she, it was amazing. She'd been running all day with my dad and doing just perfectly. And then uh, I, I swapped out from my dad running the combine and, and we just could not uh, stay in sync. So yes, it's, it's That's best if a funny. spouse is not the grain card operator. 
Yep, yep. <laughs> We're going to take a short break to tell you about our Aggie Merge Conference for 2021. After the break, we'll hear more from Colin as he talks about the state of autonomy in agriculture. We invite you to come explore the possibilities of scaling up regenerative agriculture during Ag Merge 2021. Given the many changes 2020 has thrown our way, we've made some conference changes as well. Introducing Ag Merge 2021, an exclusive on-demand experience accessible from the comfort of your home, office, or tractor cab at your own pace. Together we'll explore soil health and regenerative agriculture and how you can take concepts to practice in your operation. What remains the same as previous Ag Emerge events is our passion for sharing unique perspectives from thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and forward-thinking growers like you. Let's tackle some of the most challenging problems in agriculture with shared experiences, new ideas, and big-picture discussions. Early bird registration is open through December 31st. Register now at agemerge.com to get early bird pricing and premier access beginning January 25th, 2021. We hope you'll consider this unique opportunity to hear all the great speakers at Ag Emerge this year, especially since you can join from anywhere, virtually. Now back to our special guest, Colin Hurd. So talk to us a little bit, just a little more background for some of our listeners. You know, where, where the state of autonomy is at, um, we're all very familiar with uh, GPS guidance steering, right? And now there's starting to be some end of the row function type things that are automated. And then then you get up to uh, future levels of how much the operator is involved to where it's, you know, uh, in close proximity, it's remote monitoring. And then there's some, and what does it take to get to that final step where it's just go plant 24 seven and it tells you if it has a problem. Walk, walk yeah. through those different paths and kind of where we're at today and what it's going to take to get to that last step. Well, uh, you know, paths is really the way we look at it, right? I, I mean, there's there's different paths to autonomy for different farms and also for equipment itself uh, at different levels of automation. Um, and so where the industry is primarily today is what we would kind of classify as like level two automation, right? This is, this is your auto steer, kind of like cruise control, right? Um, but that's where the majority of the industry is. Level three would be uh, where we're kind of going, right? So it's it's automating, uh, it's more semi-autonomous, right? So we're, we're doing in-route turning. Um, you're more so in a machine today uh, just to kind of monitor its functionality, right? So, I mean, you can, with a new um, John Deere tractor, basically program it, have it set up where uh, it'll lift the, It'll lift the implement at the end of the rows, turn around for you, set it back down and go, right? You still have to be in the cab. There's no, it doesn't have any awareness of what's around it, right? So if, if a truck pulled in front of it, it, it wouldn't know that. Um, so that's what we would call level three, right? It's almost fully automated, but there's no real situational awareness. There's no perception systems. Uh, it, it still relies on a person uh, to, to be the safety net there. Right. And, and we found that people that fall asleep, take naps, or watch Netflix aren't as good <laughs> as maybe fully autonomous sensors. Because honestly, when more and more of this gets automated for an operator to be in there, it gets to be a little little dull and a little repetitive. Yeah, I mean, their absolutely. situational awareness is not there. I've, I've got some fantastic photos of uh, uh, 9,000 Ts in irrigation canals uh, just because, you know, situational awareness. Isn't always there, yeah, yep, absolutely. Well, and 
you know, frankly, uh, people are not good at uh, monotonous jobs. We're just not. We're creative uh, by nature, and uh, we're when something becomes repetitive, it becomes boring, and we put it in a part of our brain that kind of just puts it on cruise control, lets it ride out, and um, so when you when you're taking a lot of activity away from uh, an operator, it, it's good in the sense that um, you can opt and improve the operation or have more consistency, but if you're still relying on them for, you know, that one in a hundred chance of something going wrong, they could be off, you know, deep in some Netflix show or an app or who knows where. Um, so really then the fourth stage is where, uh, and it's probably one of the more difficult stages, uh, it's it's where Raven autonomy is focused. It's where we spend a lot of our focus at SmartEgg. Um, but it's uh, adding that situational awareness into the dynamic, right? So having not just having a tractor that's automated, but having a tractor that's automated and safe. Um, and that can truly um offset the need for a person to be in the cab full-time paying attention to it. Um, that being said, level four is still what we would call a supervised uh, state. So it requires that you have a connection to a person um, who can pay attention to it. And if something uh, does malfunction or if there's not that connection there, uh, the system stops in a safe way and, and waits for that to reestablish. So, it's still supervised, um, but you don't have to have a person in the cab. Um, now, were, were you the volunteer at the Farm Progress show that jumped in front of the tractor to get it to stop? Or did I've you or did you make one of your minions do this? I, I want to know. Colin. Well, so I was actually the volunteer prior to that. I was a volunteer to, you know, when we had a webcam hooked up to it. And, you know, nobody else wanted to go in front of it. Once it once it was sort of proven and we put it in the Farm Progress show that we had a lot of lot more volunteers. Everyone was a little more. Uh, readily available for that job. <laughs> That's good. Well, you can tell it worked. Uh, the safety yeah. systems worked. We're having a conversation yep. today. I'm still here today. Yep. Yep. So, <laughs> so, yeah, um, so that's the level four is really um, uh, the safety concerns, right? Is there is there a tile hole? Is there a person? Is there an object? Is there something that isn't mapped, right? Because right. prior right. to this, we have to have all the boundaries mapped and have to have it uh, non-intelligent, uh, where this is a uh, a step towards intelligence as far as situational awareness and then um, making an adjustment because of that. Yep. And, yep. and this is, yeah, and it, this it is, is really a huge step. It is. It's a, it's a really big step for the industry. And, you know, uh, we've started to see computer intelligence come into uh, farming more and more uh, just in different areas, but uh, to, actually control and operate equipment um we're some of the first people to really do that at a at like a commercial level right so actually applying um ai artificial neural networks and training it so it can see you know things that are not a map and then respond to them appropriately um is is really a it's kind of a groundbreaking uh area in ag and really it's an exciting area. We're just seeing the beginning of it. You know, it'll it'll probably, uh, and not just an egg, but within a lot of different industries, become a part of our daily lives uh, very soon, where it's just sort of a given. But um, 
it really opens the door to the next level, the final level of automation, which is just complete, full, unsupervised, uh, let it run and knows what to do. So, you know, you and I can be sitting here having a conversation in front of our desks and have a you know, couple of planters out in the field running and just, you know, be there uh, to, you know, send them to the next field when they're done or uh, have somebody go to dispatch seed or whatever it is. But that's that's really the the level we're working to. And I think we'll get there uh, relatively soon. There's a lot we still have to learn, I think, at level four. Um, there's a lot of situations we still have to train uh, the system for. Um, but it builds on itself. You know, most technology is pretty exponential. And so uh, I think it's easy to, to look at um, things and say, hey, this is a linear progression. We're going to go from one to two to three. But really, it's not. You know, it's, it's one to two to four to eight. And, and uh, it, it happens very quickly once it has that um, initial uh, compounding. And so we're seeing that now and we're building off of that. And there's a lot of, um, there's just a, a lot of opportunity in this space, I think still uh, to, to add that intelligence to farming and it's not to replace people. It's not to, um, you know, say that you and I can't do a good job. It's just actually to make our lives easier and allow us to do more and be more effective. And um, I think it's, it's pretty cool. It's exciting stuff. Well, there, there's a couple couple different directions I'd like to take our conversation here. But one of the things I think is exciting is when we get full um, full autonomy and we get artificial intelligence decision-making and we have a robust enough sensor array in every dimension that you can think of, that autonomous vehicle is going to make decisions based on reality, not based on human assumptions. Because... That's what my dad told me, or that's because the neighbor's running, or grandpa used to do it this way, or, you know, gosh darn it, just seems right. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's going to be able to calculate based on these conditions and, and all of this sensory input right now. I have a predictive model of what the outcome could be, and based on forecasting, um, Therefore, I can make that calculation that, yes, I need to go now, even though it's not perfectly ideal. Uh, when I look at the acres, the 22,138 acres I have left to go, I can do that at 85% efficiency or wait for 90% and not finish the last 20%. You know, it's all these kind of things that are, as we get to scale, right, uh, bringing all these considerations in, uh, because it's so overwhelming for people, there gets to be a lot of emotion involved. Yep. You know, and, and, well, and it's easier, and it's easier. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, it's frankly, it's easier to make those decisions based off of our gut or what our dad taught us. Right. Than right. It is to take into account all the different variables that are occurring and changing constantly and then try to make the most rational decision. That's a lot of computation to do. And we need to just get the job done in most cases. Right. So taking all the time to figure out that and look at all the different scenarios and actually understand like, well, if I wait on this one field, the chance of it raining is, you know, 20% uh, between now and then. So I might give up this much yield, but yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a massive amount of calculation that you could do and look at and say, well, here's the optimal time to plant every single field based off of the weather forecast and the variables and the 
soil types and the seed type and and you know on and on the list goes but um for but the, you and i to figure that out it's just like well and it'd be an argument <laughs> in the shop wouldn't it i mean it'd be an argument yeah. at the beginning of the day yep. in the shop and we'd be like ah what should we do da, 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 da. and 15 minutes we kind of figure out something and half the people are mad and the other half know it's the right yeah. thing to do and honestly you'll never know but the reality is in 15 milliseconds the computer model would know it and, yep. and do it with real and and all the emotions out of it, and we're optimizing every square inch of every field. Mm-hmm. So, uh, another little nugget that you had in there, I wanted to dive in on a little bit, is the data set that is required to be able to make these kind of predictive assumptions. So, in, in this case, you know, like FieldView and all these other agronomic type data set companies, and um, uh, large big data consolidators that their whole uh, motive is to come up with a yield prediction model essentially what what does this mean therefore we can predict outputs we can predict inputs and and optimize the system so he who has the most data in acres wins that game correct now on autonomy isn't that the same story he who has the most environments or the the most uh, years, the most uh, implements conditions wins that game. Isn't isn't that part of what was so uh, robust about what you did at SmartAg across m- multiple environments to to really ramp up this uh, essentially knowledge set within the the brain of AutoCart? Right, it's huge, uh, and it it really uh, to simplify it, it, it comes down to pictures, you know. Whoever has the most uh, uh, image data from different environments is going to have the best model. Um, I mean, there is a diminishing return there. At a certain point, you can uh, you don't need anymore. Um, but we haven't. We're we're a long ways from that. And um, to the degree that we continue to collect more and more data in more environments with different implements, I mean, it adds to the robustness of the of the product, uh, it, you know, and so just for example, um, one of the stories that, uh, I like to share is, uh, so, you know, when we initially built the first model to detect people in front of the tractor, uh, it was running at like 99% accurate. Um, and then we took it out one day in a snow covered field and ran it just cause we were doing some testing. And it failed miserably. It was horrible. It couldn't see anything. It couldn't detect anything because it had never been in that environment before. It never had that uh, white background. Uh, and so it couldn't see people. It was completely blind. Um, and so we just spent the rest of that day collecting pictures of people, you know, with snow as a backdrop. I hope you had uh, a lot of interns. <laughs> we, we scattered them up. Yeah. <laughs> We always did have a lot of interns at SmartAgo. Perfect. We're never short on interns. So. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we put put people out there, took, a, you know, uh, I don't know, 200 or so images. And then we just added that to the base data set that we had and retrained it. And then all of a sudden the next day, it worked perfectly. So I guess my point there is, is that um, once you have a baseline established, it actually becomes relatively easy to add these new edge cases and so that's how you can uh, continually improve the robustness of it 
Um, but having that phase data set makes a ton of ton of difference uh, to begin with. Okay, so now we've just learned the secret behind what AutoCart's really doing, right? We're really creating this baseline to take over the world. No, I'm just joking. But once you got this baseline now, you can apply it to other operations in the farm. So talk to us about where where you see where we're at today in agriculture uh, to 10 years and 20 years from now. What does that roadmap look like? We've created this data set. We, we, it knows how to respond. What, how do you see equipment changing and operations changing over time? Uh, share a few things. I'll share a few things, and and we'll we'll argue it out, or we'll we'll agree it out. How's that sound? Yeah, no, it sounds good. I I, I think um, one of the things that we'll see it, it's actually interesting because it's I think it depends on the on the farm size, right? So uh, in large, uh, you know, I don't know, ten thousand acre plus farms that are full time, they run their their operation as a business. Um, you know, they're, they're focused on the bottom line and the P&L. Uh, one of the things, and, and most of their labor is hired already, right? It's not family members, but, but uh, one of the things is they're, they want automation today and are willing to pay, you know, a premium to get that because what it does is it gives that farm owner or that manager more control over everything that's happening in the field. Um, he can, he can prescribe um, exactly what happens uh, or what he wants to have happen in the field and then know and have the data that supports it that that job was done properly and it was uh, done effectively. And then he can track everything and man, you know, just have his finger on the pulse of the operation at all times. And so um, there, those operations, I, I don't think there's much of a, um, I don't know, lag towards adopting it. They'll adopt it as it becomes available um, and as it fits their needs. Um, it'll be interesting though to see how um, automation changes the size of equipment, right? Back to sort of the earlier uh, part of the conversation. And, and it, there's, there's different dynamics at, at play, right? Part of it's just the uh, consumer demand, right? I mean, what does a farmer want? Um, and in most cases, as long as you don't increase his costs, um, or the amount of labor he needs, a farmer is going to use whatever equipment, uh, makes the most sense. Uh, and so if that's smaller, lighter equipment, it's obviously going to make more sense in a lot of cases. The challenge is, is, you know, does it, it come with an increased maintenance cost or what, it, what's the trade-offs or what, you know, how do you, how do you manage that, um, within an operation. But I think the other major uh, factor with that is what the industry has invested in, right? I mean, so you look at the, the major OEMs in the place and uh, they've, they've become really good at making large, heavy, high horsepower equipment. And for that market to dry up rapidly, which it might, uh, could be detrimental. And so, uh, there may be a lot of uh, resistance just from the overall OEM side to that change. Um, so I'm really kind of curious to see how all that plays out. Maybe some of them will ad adapt that new mindset quicker and embrace it and, and force that change upon themselves, but um, I'm not sure. 
at this point. Uh, yeah. But then I think you, when you look at like some of the the smaller operations, I think it's a mixed bag, right? I mean, you get some some operations that are you know family farms, um, and it, it runs deep in their blood, and, and you know for them, introducing a computer intelligent tractor onto their farm is you know just it's not going to happen, right? In in the near term, it's just they're they're not comfortable with that level of technology. And, and I think you have that with any new technology. There's always going to be some laggards. You had it with auto steer, right? There's farms that said, hey, you'll never see this on my operation. And then five years later, they, they swear by it. But um, it takes time for part of the, you know, some farms to just get comfortable with this idea. Um, and so I do think there's different paths towards it for different operations. And you know, at Raven, really one of our goals is to support people and companies uh, along that path, really, no matter where they are. So if they want to take an initial step into level three type automation, we want to have uh, a way to support that. Or if they're ready to jump off the deep end and go to level four, we want to have solutions there too. So, Well, I, I think that's that's interesting. And, and, and like you're saying that the OEMs, uh, because there's so few players there and just by default, when you have few players, you have large market share per player. And of course there's the green gorilla in the room, uh, that, you know, uh, change is, is not always there. I mean, it costs money to change and why change something when, when you're at, you know, over 50% share of market in many categories. So I, I think that is uh, a challenge. But at the end of the day, you know, if you don't change, uh, you know, if you don't happen to change, change will happen to you. And uh, I think this whole area is ripe for, you know, a Tesla type to come out of nowhere and, and just knock the big boys off their pedestals um, mm-hmm. because it's going to move to smaller equipment. And I think we'll get to single maybe even single row swarm equipment. That's still a little fuzzy out there if that's going to happen. But, you know, it just depends on your cost per unit. I think the other thing to look at is, is why in the world do I want to own equipment? And I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before, is who cares? I want a job done, right? Mm-hmm. I, 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 don't, mm-hmm. I don't desire equipment. If I want something nice, you know, get, get, get an old muscle car. Okay, you know, yeah. <laughs> there there's the kind of iron to own, but uh, airplane, yeah, airplane, air, or something, whatever, um, a cyber truck. Uh, well, maybe that's a bad example, but anyway, I, I'm saying, um, so, uh, instead of software as a service, farming as a service. You know, you can have these swarms of things start and move from south to north and north to south, uh, and they can run 24 seven. They don't get sleepy. And there's some right. operations, especially spraying and foliar fertilization, that's better at night, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's more efficient at night. So, I mean, getting that 24-hour, seven-day-a-week cycle, they don't mind working Christmas, you know. Right. So right. Yep. Um, yep. I, I think there's just lots of things that we got to open our minds and, and, and think differently. So, but, Yeah, I agree. And I, I, I do think automation it's disruptive to the status quo, the way we've always done things. And you know, I've, I've said for a long time, I, I like to sort of compare it to when the tractor replaced the horse uh, on farms, you know, I think it actually is that big of a change and we just don't really understand how it all plays out yet. Right. I mean, 
um, and how it will, you know, how we'll adopt it, how we'll, how we'll use this uh, technology in farming, but we will, um, and it's going to create a lot of opportunity and a lot of, uh, a lot of change. And um, it's, it's really, it's a really exciting time in agriculture, I think, because of that. I mean, um, we're going to see this transformation take place. And I don't know, probably when we're, uh, you know, old grandpas, uh, we'll just be looking back and saying, Hey, can you believe we used to sit in tractors all day? <laughs> you know, like how, how did people even farm like that? That must've been miserable. So now with, with that on mind where we need to go in the future and how do we get there and looking at the competitive landscape, um, what, what keeps you up at night? What, what's the next thing that you're, that you're, that you're, Hey, we got to do this. We got to do this now to stay ahead of the game as you know, Raven technologies and what our, what our mission is, what are you, what's a high of mind on, on your plate right now? Well, you know, I guess from a Raven perspective, uh, first and foremost is just taking, taking this technology and making it mainstream. Right. So we've, we've, uh, smart egg has invested a lot. Raven has invested a lot. Uh, we've made some changes over the past year to incorporate some, some more of Raven's technology into the smart egg product. Um, we also added dot to the portfolio, which is another, uh, just completely unique uh, concept on on farming and on automation. And so what we're in the process of doing now is just hardening, hardening some of those changes we've made and then getting it out to market, right? And uh, that's, that's probably the number one thing as an organization that we're focused and committed to. So we just are, we're uh, going to be, I think, opening pre-orders soon uh, this month uh, so people can start so Monty, you can finally get your auto cart on its way well you um, see that's what i was hoping was highest <laughs> on your mind uh, colin and i've had several conversations about this and i rib him on a regular occasion so i figured he would answer Monty. we've been thinking about when we could deliver your auto cart but uh, <laughs> obviously he's not we're not high enough mind there but uh, no i'm looking forward to that the pre-order process and learning more about that and i would certainly like to we'll get some links from you and, and put that in the podcast here about that yeah that'd okay. be great um and so, you know, that's first and foremost, but then I think second, secondly, uh, where we're looking longer term and where I know uh, as an organization we want to be is uh, we want to have Raven autonomy really be a core platform that can be built on, not just by us, right? And I think that's where we really start to compound the uh, benefits of this technology because if as a implement manufacturer, I can know that if I hook it up to a Raven automated vehicle, I'm going to have access to these features and the ability to do X, Y, and Z. Um, what you start to create is this ecosystem uh, around this technology that can be leveraged in a lot of different use cases. And so getting beyond just a grain cart um, and having that platform technology that can be built on for all the different jobs on our farm uh, is a huge next step. And I think that that puts us in a position where we can uh, be extremely successful with the investment and autonomy. Now you realize that's not how you're supposed to do it, Colin. You guys are supposed to have closed architecture software that only talks to itself and, and and the certain branded tractor only talks to the certain branded implement. And if you need anything else, you have to have a can uh, t- um, translator systems 
or third party systems to get them to talk to each other. You're doing that all wrong. <laughs> well, right. And, and you have to also pay for uh, somebody to come out and uh, update your software so you can, uh, you know, your oil filter light goes off and you can <laughs> run your tractor again. Yeah. My favorite thing is yeah. replacing a $69 solenoid on a hydraulic valve and you got to bring out the technician for $300 uh, service call to uh, yeah. program it in that I'd plugged it in. You know, just yeah, those kind exactly. of things are just wonderful. So I'm, I'm glad you're going the right way about this. I mean, having <laughs> open architecture, open communications, that's really going to accelerate it. Plus, it's it's going to, uh, I think, help wake up uh, those who need waked up, woke up to uh, uh, get on board with autonomy. So, yeah, fantastic. Absolutely. That is a huge, huge thing. So great vision. I'm glad you're doing that. So, yeah, I, we're really excited about that. Looking back now. Entrepreneur, two successful exits. Um, you know, maybe it'll be a third someday. I uh, there's there's not a lot of gray hair going on there, Colin. So, or there'll be a fourth, fifth, or sixth. Um, looking back, when you were, what would you've learning? What you've learned now with this uh, latest exit? What would you have told yourself uh, as that uh, college kid taking that three hundred level econ class? <laughs> It's hard to know. I, I mean, I wouldn't have discouraged myself, uh, you know, so I just would have said, hey, you can do it. And I, I think the biggest thing would just be, um, you know, stay true to yourself, continue to learn uh, and and make sure that you're investing in the people. Right. Because one of the things that I realize when I look back at, at the, both the journeys um, with Tractail and, and Smart Egg is that. I'm I'm just sort of the catalyst, right? I'm not the I'm not the entire journey, right? It's it's it takes a lot of really smart people um, to make something like this happen, and and uh, it, it definitely takes the idea guy too, right? I mean, there's it takes somebody to have the initiative and say, hey, this is where we need to go, but um, having an understanding of the type of people and the investment in people you need to make to pull something like this together is uh, a huge uh, takeaway for me. And I think as I look towards uh, a future, you know, that's, that's my number one uh, goal is to, to find, find the right people and the right ideas. Uh, and that's really, a, I think a winning recipe for success in life. If you can continually do that, um, I, I think there's very few problems that can't be solved or um, opportunities that you can't realize in, in your life. So, Yeah, you can have all the great ideas in the world, but if you don't have a great team to accomplish it, it's just an idea. You know, yep. and <laughs> There's a lot of smart, smart people with a lot of really good ideas, but no, uh, no ability to move it to the next stage. And a lot of it's just that, you know, they don't know who to talk to or how to, how to get it there on their own. Um, you can't, you gotta have, you gotta have a good team around you. And talking about that a little bit, uh, share with us what's going on out there at uh, Iowa state university and the ag uh, startup lab and, and those kind of things that are going on there to help those people get connected that have the great ideas to get connected with the right people in the right places to bring their idea more to fruition. There's some exciting things happening there. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's kind of a cool ecosystem that's been building and gaining momentum over time, right? So when I when I kind of some of it 
spun out of that original entrepreneur class, right? It's, uh, it's all connected. But um, when I started my first company, there was really no resources locally to rely on. And it was, there just wasn't much of a startup ecosystem. So if you needed somebody to help, uh, help you figure out how to set up a, um, option plan for employees in your company, well, there really wasn't anybody else locally that had done it, or you were going to talk to some attorney who maybe didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> um, and, uh, so I think now there's just this, there's this ecosystem and, uh, it's an ecosystem of investors who want to support good ideas. It's an ecosystem of other entrepreneurs, which I think is the most valuable element is having other founders, having other people who are facing the same challenges of starting a company that you are. Um, and then there's, there's a lot of really good mentors. So depending on if you're in a, a animal health type business or an ag tech company, um, there's now this pretty broad network of uh, resources that you can tap into through the ag startup engine and um, the Iowa state entrepreneurship initiative. So, um, it's really cool to have seen that and experience it, you know, once from a track till time where there wasn't a whole lot there to then the smart egg startup uh, experience. There was more. And now today, I think um, with the smart egg exit and also performance livestock analytics was another portfolio company that recently sold the Zoetis. Uh, there's just a, there's a wealth of uh people and experience um, and investors around this community that I think anybody who wants to start a company in egg should seriously be considering uh, this area as the place to do it. Frankly, I don't, you, you're, you just, so I, I've been to, right. I've been to the Mecca of startup world, right. Silicon Valley I spent uh, several weeks of my life out there uh, meeting people and networking. And I, there's an amazing amount of resources, uh, in that space, but it's very, very disconnected from the heartland. So when, when you try to explain labor scarcity challenges, um, you first have to start explaining what a combine harvester is or what, why people, you know, don't eat corn that's grown in the field. Um, so, <laughs> I thought, I, I mean, thought farming <laughs> would just occurred in Salinas. Yeah, you know, right. that, because well, it, because it's an hour other. down the road from Silicon Valley. Yeah. I mean, that's all they yeah. know is Salinas, and and it's fun. Yeah. You go to those Forbes Ag Tech things, and there's everybody there with like Italian shoes. But well, anyway, but, yeah, it, it's it's incredible <laughs> too. You're absolutely right. It, the the viewpoint of agriculture or ag tech is like centered around growing strawberries and lettuce, and you know, it's it's very disconnected from broad acre agriculture, and I think that's where there's a, a tremendous amount of opportunity um, is in broad acre agriculture just because it's not Acres. as well understood by yeah. that, that uh, marketplace. So anyways, I, I guess my point is, is I think this is probably one of the best, you know, Iowa is probably one of the best places to uh, yeah. just to start a company focused on mainstream agriculture because of now this ecosystem here. So. And really, the specialty crops is a different world, and it's and Silicon Valley is is funding that well, you know, because yeah, of, of yeah, geographic absolutely. proximity and those kind of things. But there needs to be a corn belt, you know, type of initiative, and there probably, you know, there's other things going on down in Memphis and and some other spots uh, that are more for you know a greater regional type uh, characteristics. Mm -hmm. um, 
we're about to wrap up here today, Colin. I just wanted to ask you anything else you want like to bring up that I I've, I've forgotten to talk about. I mean, we we could uh, we could spend a long time going over different uh, things here today, but I want to make sure uh, if there's anything left unsaid, that I give you opportunity to do that now. No, I don't think so. I think we did a really good job, Monty, actually covering a lot of ground. Um, and it, I mean, as you can tell, I'm really excited about the future of autonomy and, and what that means for uh, farming. And um, I hope that uh, folks will uh, continue to learn and explore, you know, what this can mean for their operations and uh, reach out to us at Raven if you have questions um, or uh you know, there's a lot of other resources out there online too, but um, yeah, really excited about it and uh, looking forward to, you know, driving down the road one day and just, you know, not knowing who the farmer is, but looking out in the field and seeing his tractor driving around with no one in it. So that's kind of my, you know, that's when I will say, okay, this, this technology has really made it now. Um, so that is awesome. That's a great visual to have for that. So I really appreciate the opportunity of getting to know you over uh, the past couple of years here. And, and I congratulate you on your success with uh, both of the uh, products and ideas and the teams that you put together to make this happen. Um, it's a, a brave thing that you've done, a needed and necessary thing that you've done. It's just, it's just plain awesome that uh, to see these things all come together to really create a benefit. And, you know, what I see is that once we get this ability to sense what it's doing, now that can be turned in anything, you know, whether it's in seeding of cover crops, whether it's in moving and grazing animals, whether it's, you know, making more efficient current systems that we have. Just a, the, there's just unlimited opportunities to um, turn, turn all of this into, it's only going to be limited by our mind, essentially, what you can do yeah. with, with yeah. what you've created. So. Absolutely. But thank you well, very much. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Monty, and, and doing this and uh, all the support along the way. That's awesome. I'm glad to be a little part of it. Well, Kim, that was a lot of fun. I apologize. Uh, we're doing this a little bit afterwards because I hogged the mic. That is just not fair, Kim. I, I, I hope you. I hope your feelings aren't hurt. Um, I am perfectly good. Next time, I'll just arm wrestle you for it, or rock paper scissors, something. It, it's all good. <laughs> well, I was over here tapping my fingers, just ready to hit the next question. Hit the next question. Before you knew it, we were out of time. But what I wanted to do is take some time now with you and me and go through how do you how does autonomy affect the soil health principles? And and you know, really, there's just uh, tremendous opportunities when you look at things as far as. Uh, with the lighter vehicles, and you were having a uh, good discussion with me afterwards about that. Talk well, about that. I, well, I just, you know, I was try I was asking Monty to kind of connect the dots for me because what I first heard Colin talking about was he he was trying to solve a problem with compaction, mm -hmm. and so he thought through that problem and he and he worked through it. But he, uh, as uh, we were talking about that, he solved about eighty percent of the compaction problem. He was trying to recover that other twenty percent, right, and still doing it with tillage, right, right. Mm -hmm. And so then my mind goes to you know, you take that next step and what causes compaction is the weight of those vehicles, right? And so then that's the next step, right? Is that we, we looked at solving that immediate problem, but now when we talk about autonomy, we can start looking at weight of vehicles, passes through the field, the size of the equipment. What, what mm -hmm. does that look like? I think you get down to really single row, eventually operations, but s simply if we could go from 400 horsepower, you know, 36 row planters down to 100 horsepower eight row planters 
the the impact is so much less. So soil health principle, minimize disturbance, right? right. So Less weight on the ground means less that the soil is impacted, the less that it's deoxygenated, the less the chance for surface erosion from following tire tracks or whatever. I mean, there's a huge opportunity. The next thing we were talking about, too, was all of a sudden, why do we have to be monocrop? Right. You know, we're monocropping now because we don't have much of a choice. You know, with uh, chemistries are broadcast applied to for pests and diseases and, and weeds. Uh, seeds are broadcast applied and harvested. What happens if all of a sudden we can have a multiple layer? You know, we have a floor, a medium stature, and a high stature. Essentially, the concept that the Native Americans had with the three sisters, the corn, beans, and squash, and working in synergy with each other. Right. When you have autonomous vehicles... They can go out there and, and farm those three different crops automatically better than, you know, what we could even when the Native Americans were doing it by hand. So, you know, that's just wild thinking, but it's possible, right, to right. increase diversity. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I'm thinking about our little project uh, back in our greenhouse with the farm bot and it being able to identify those individual weeds or uh, which crop it was working on. And so th- looking at it on a large scale and the opportunities that um, that is afforded by this autonomy. The also, the other thing that I was excited to hear in this conversation, because, um, you know, my software side of me loves that data that is being gathered. And you talked a lot about what, what decisions can be made in 15 milliseconds of time um, that are, have normally been relegated to a gut feeling or, you know, a vote <laughs> to, to decide what to do. And so that's the thing is that I think there's so much data out there, but this is data that we can really use to make uh, significant decisions and, and um, really affect what's happening out in the field. And, and I, I think that's really cool too. Yeah, and really it's resource restricted decisions. So right. we only have so many operating hours. We only have so many of these. Um, uh, inputs and those kind of things. What are those decisions versus a lot of the decision-making we're doing now is, oh, I've got this pest pressure. It's at this threshold. Should I, you know, spray or not? You know, Mm -hmm. it's kind of an after the fact where this is more of a preemptive planning type exercise that autonomy will enable because Mm -hmm. all of a sudden when it's great weather and we should be going, you know, it's hard to go 24-7 for seven days in a row. Right. You get a little tired. Right. And, you know, this this allows those those type of things. So I think it allows us to uh, plant or harvest whatever operation to a crop in the proper way so that we are able to no-till. We are able to minimize disturbance. We are able to minimize uh, chemical impact. We are able to maximize diversity because diversity, for example, how do you do it today? Uh, we recommend diverse rotations, hard to rotate an almond crop, right? Right. Every 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> and typically, if you've got an almond crop in, what do you go back to? Another almond crop. So the way we're you know, maximizing diversity today is crop rotations or cover crop mixtures. That's it. Mm-hmm. Co-cropping doesn't exist very much. So where we're planting two crops at once or harvesting two crops at the same time, that's tough to do with today's big machinery. But when we get down to small machinery that's automatic, you know, to completely change that game. And there's a lot of synergies to be had. Like, for example, we've seen on our own farm growing 
soybeans and rye together. That's a win. But it's hard to do and requires some seed separation after the fact, and we're still getting a lot of bugs out of that. But autonomy would just take that to a completely different level, mm-hmm. being mm-hmm. able to do it. Well, and one other thing that I thought was really important that you talked about is that you don't necessarily need to own iron. Like, you know, it would be a lot more fun to have a muscle car oh, than it would it's, be. Oh, to... but it's a tax write-off. <laughs> I need the depreciation, Kim. You know, that's what everybody says. Yeah. Oh, I got to have the depreciation. Right. Totally uh-huh. understand. But I, I thought, you know, that's a whole paradigm shift in it, in and of itself, not having that um, equipment uh, sitting. It's um, custom farming services you could count on. Right. Because they can predict how many acres they can get to. When sure. they're a month ahead based on forecasting and within a relative certainty, you know, you can have them. It's not like hoping the custom cutter shows up. Right, right. So there's some opportunities there. And I think those are the key things that I think when, when we talk about regenerative ag, we're not just talking about ways that you're changing the actual farming system as far as what you're planting, how you're planting, when you're planting, what you're doing to your soil. But we're also looking at ways that we are reducing expenses, that we're changing the way we operate so that what profitability looks like is different. We're defining it differently. I mean, the bottom line is, did we make any money? But yeah, and, and I think, unfortunately, some people in the regenerative ag movement look at technology in disfavor. Mm-hmm. They, don't, they don't like it. They want it to be more homesteady and those kind of things. And, and that's great for their individual context. But if we want 50,000-acre farmers to make a change, it's more labor-intense. They're going to have to have autonomy a part of that equation. Mm-hmm. If we're going to bring livestock back to the land, autonomy has got to be a part of the equation whether it's in the decision-making process and the fencing systems and the, in the movement systems and the feeding systems, all these things need to be autonomous mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. in order to really make that work. Because right now in regeneratively produced proteins, the number one expense is labor. And, and, and the number one hardest thing to find is it labor. labor. Mm-hmm. And, and to teach the labor. And all, all that labor is number one. Mm-hmm. And, and land is number two. Mm-hmm. But as labor efficiency and labor decision-making improves with autonomy, then not only do you cut out that whole labor cost component of regenerative uh, livestock integration, you also improve the efficiency of your land so your land costs go down. Mm-hmm. Now, now we can start to get regeneratively relay, raised animal proteins within range instead of being a 2x portion were within maybe 130, 140% of conventional CAFO food. Mm. Now we're within a range where people are really looking at, well, should I, I, I would be willing to pay a little bit more, but I'm not willing to pay twice as much. Mm-hmm. So there's just huge, huge opportunities. And that fifth element <laughs> that I like to talk <laughs> about, the fifth <laughs> element of uh, principle five, is the most impactful thing we can do is get livestock back on the land. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it'll double what the other four will do. And if we can use technologies such as automation to make that happen, mm-hmm. it will get adopted, it will increase revenue stream for our customers, and it will make people healthier, it'll improve our land faster. Other than that, it's not a good idea. <laughs> 
I would say that's a really robust list of of good reasons. Uh, you know, in all honesty, as you are adopting these systems, I understand that homestead idea of the smaller operations. But if we're going to have the significant environmental impacts that we're talking about having, then that has to happen on that bigger level, right? Yeah, there's not tens of millions of people wanting to move back to the country to work for nothing and get paid hardly nothing and subsistently Mm -hmm. live. Mm -hmm. That's just not there. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a way to help uh, farmers at scale to, you know, move to regenerative and and really scale up regenerative agriculture as a result of that. Mm -hmm. I think it's exciting. And of course, I love to see the technology that, you know, I'm a big proponent of technology. I've been quoted as saying, just because you can doesn't mean you should with technology sometimes. I'm kind of the opposite. Just because I can, (laughs) I I should, you know, just like AutoCart probably doesn't make any sense for us. It's just cool. We, I got to have one of them. But I feel like the people that got to have it are the are the trailblazers for then the things that come a little bit after that that are more practical that do make the reasons why technology is is a path to to a see trailblazer trailblazer is much nicer than a crazy fool so thanks kim i appreciate that i'm within striking distance so i was (laughs) guarding my words but so those are but those are important things to understand and good good thoughts to have that's what i love kind of as we pick the brains of these of you guys that are you know constantly thinking of new ways to do things um, this is how we get to it. This is how we get to solve these problems. And it's fun. I don't know if you can tell, but everybody, you know, when we have these folks on the podcast, they are having fun being problem solvers. And that keeps your mind going. And it's probably the reason my 79-year-old dad still works every day, because it keeps his mind going. And solving problems is what he does. That's what that's I just like to see that happen. So anyway, we appreciate y'all joining us today. Um, it's been a great conversation. We hope you're as excited as we are. And we look forward to bringing more exciting guests to you on the Aggie Merge podcast. Make it a great day. Thank you.